Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. I'm often asked if it's intimidating cooking for celebrities who come to the River Cafe. My response is that the guests who really worry me are other chefs. It's a bit like that today, as I'm about to interview the interviewer, Mariella Frostrop, especially since I was once the subject for Guardian's Lunch with Mariella. Mariella wrote, Despite such eloquence, Ruthie is a disaster of an interview. <laughs> My questions get longer as her answers get shorter and inevitably end with a question for me. She's all, don't you think, and do you find, and have you noticed? But I'm reminding myself that I'm not here with Marielle, the journalist, but Marielle, my good friend. When Marielle books a table in the River Cafe, it's most often for two, usually with her husband, human rights lawyer, Jason McHugh. Watching her is watching someone who's diverted only by what she is eating and drinking, as she's entirely focused to the person she's with, sitting close, talking, smiling, laughing, and listening. Her daughter Molly, who's working here as a barback, told me about growing up with her mother, cooking together, eating together, traveling together to Norway, to Greece, all over the world. Now Marielle and I will do the same. Intimidated? Why would I be? Don't you think? <laughs> Do you find? Do you notice? <laughs> oh, Ruthie, that's the best introduction I've ever had, ever, ever in think? my entire life, don't you think? <laughs> How would you like to be described, Ruthie? <laughs> I'm sorry I said that, but it is true. It's true. You said it was really sweet of you. Said, you said you just kept turning the questions back on me. So today I'm just going to listen to you and not say, don't you think? But before we do, first of all, I'm so happy you're here. I love having Molly here. She's just fantastic. I think she feels like she's at a West End show oh. every night of her life. <laughs> she, because, oh, yeah. because she's a barback, so she's behind the counter. <laughs> Who did the cooking when you were, you know, in your house? Well, in our house, it's very, it was very 50-50. Did you have Sunday lunches? Was, that a, was there one meal that you would have that would be We would have a, Sunday lunches. Yeah. And I'd say the, the most important thing of our Sunday lunch was probably the Yorkshire puddings. Oh. My dad was obsessed with them. He'd really? have, like, 50 at least. Your mum grew up in Norway. Do you have a connection, yeah. food connection to Norway? So we go to Norway sometimes uh, on holiday because, I mean, it's so beautiful. And yeah. obviously, like, mum likes the fact that yeah. we all get to see. We're sort of where we're from mm. and stuff but um I wouldn't really say that there was a sort of dish that yeah, we remember Norwegian. there's this sort of cheese that mum's obsessed with but none of us like yeah. so much Norwegian cheese <laughs> yeah oh, it's really? something it's like and it's a very brown color yeah. and it's very smelly or, okay. and sweet and weird yeah. it's not for me okay. I can't understand none of my family yeah, are converted what is to wrong it? with them I think I it's probably heavily <laughs> processed and not necessarily good for you but it is a taste of childhood it's yes, called yeah. yai toast and it's a it's a goat's cheese but it's <laughs> I'm, gonna t I'm gonna make it sound disgusting it, it's it looks sort of caramel colored <laughs> it's, it's, it's caramel called brun, brun cheese because the thing about Norwegian is that it's very literal you know if you pass mm -hmm. a lake and it's got brown water it'll be called brun lake oh, okay. you know if you pass a house and it's the first one in the row it'll be called hus one okay and and so brun so cheese okay. is brun what cheese. it gets called okay this gives us a chance to start at the let's begin at the very beginning Norway you were born in Norway? Where? Uh, born in Oslo mm. um, in 1962, mm. uh, where my dad had moved back. He and my mother met at Edinburgh. Mm. She was um, a very young art student. She was 16 when they first 16. met. She'd started art college two years early. She was an incredible talent mm. uh, but this was um the end of the 1950s yeah. he was studying english at edinburgh university as a lot of scandinavians well they still do but a lot of norwegians particularly go to edinburgh mm. so they met there and when she was 18 she gave up art college and went back with him to norway uh, where i was born and then my brother and then my sister in in 
fairly quick succession. Do you remember the food that you ate when you were in Norway? Well, how, what, what age did you leave? Six. Oh, so you might not remember. Yeah, but you know, there's a really weird thing I think that happens. I mean, firstly, my main food memory of Norway is actually because at that time in the 1960s they really didn't have many ingredients at mm. all you know there wasn't this sort of globalization no, yeah, of exactly. food and you know you, you'd get strawberries but only in midsummer and yeah. um, there was a lot of pickling mm. fish and vegetables salt um, cod uh, salt cod which I didn't like mm. at all but I do remember and I still love it there's a, an arctic chard mm-hmm. arctic mm-hmm. chard mm-hmm. that they do mm-hmm. that's just I mean I think one of the most delicious mm. uh, pieces of fish in, the, in or fishes mm. in in the world but because of that, I think most of... Oh, I do remember things like cheese. We would always have cheese at breakfast. And um, strawberry jam wasn't like strawberry jam that you get here in jars and things. It would be fresh-made strawberry jam. They'd make it and oh, then really? it would last so. until the next summer. Yeah. And so you would have a, a saucer oh. full of it and you would just spoon it onto mm-hmm. your cheese uh, on your crackers or on your uh, rye bread. And... I remember things like that, but the thing I remember most was, I think it was difficult times, and I think it was it was difficult with my parents, and they weren't very happy very in Norway. Well. Very young, and my mum had sort of given up all of her artistic expression to go mm. there, and suddenly she had three children, and it was the 1950s, and Norway was very, very conservative mm. uh, then. And um, my father used to travel a lot because he, he of, of his work, he was a journalist, mm. And he came back from um, Tanzania, a trip to Tanzania. And he arrived back, and this will show you how long ago it was, with a box full of fruit. It had things we'd never seen before. It had mangoes and these extraordinary melons and and the breadfruit and just all of these things. And it was like a miracle. It was like sunshine had just, it was like all the windows had opened and sunshine just blazed into our our apartment. And I'll never forget it. You know, it was a really, really strong and striking memory from a period of time where I don't have that many um, memories. But what I was going to say about sense memory to do with food is I don't remember much about the food there. But when I go back, I'm like the, you know, the woman in the tin drum in the film. I'm like her, the one who can't stop eating fish. I'm sat there with jars of herrings. I can't Mm. get enough suracil, you know, I can't pickle everything. Mm. (laughs) Pickled gherkins, everything. And did your father miss it, do you think? Did you have any of it in Ireland? Oh, we used to get suracil. We would get pickled Mm. uh, fish in jars because you couldn't get that in Ireland. Ireland then I, I'm not sure that he missed it he was never much of a food man my father he was more of a drink man oh, okay so um his interest in food was sort of minimal can you remember sitting down at meals with them and and as a child and was for dinners or lunches and it was the 1970s Ruthie yeah. Yeah, and okay. um, I don't think we did a lot of sitting yeah. down yeah. for meals and also because it was always complicated they split up when I was eight yeah. so I think those sort of family moments Mm. were very few and far between, which is probably why Jason and I have been so kind of committed to creating them to a point where my children are like, oh, no, not Sunday lunch, please. (laughs) And But as you grew up in Ireland, so what was it like growing up? You were quite poor. You said that you had very little money. Yeah, and, and so food, you know, in terms of, you know, defining childhood food memories, they tend to be not Mm. very... um, uh, not very warm and cozy mm. ones. I mean, uh, the awful, awful memory ones when we really had run out of food. And my brother, who was always the one who tried to be emollient, he's the, mm. he's the, he is still the, the kindest mm. um, man you'll meet. And he was trying to make light of the fact that there literally was nothing in the cupboard. And he was like, look, look, I've got spaghetti and I've got golden syrup. It'll be delicious. So you wouldn't have... <laughs> He wasn't going to have the golden syrup after the spaghetti. No, he was going to have no, it. No, he made it for Creative. us with the golden yeah. syrup. It was one of the most disgusting I combinations I've oh. ever come across. Did you say it at the time? Did anybody able no, to eat it? No, no, we grinned and went, yeah, this is no, good. Was, Lovely sugar, sugar and starch. What could of, be yeah, bad? Yeah, you could have, um, it's like rice pudding, I suppose. How long did you live in Ireland for? Uh, till I was 16. Yeah, and 16. your father died while you were there? He died when I was 15. Um, he was 46. He had a heart attack. 
attack for right years. There, that and was what, 70s? 78. Yeah. And then I moved to London in, in 79. So when you came to, with after the tragedy of your father's death, is that when you moved from Ireland? Did you yeah. Right after that. Very so shortly. So all three of you and your mom. No. No, me. What? By yourself? Yeah. How old were you? Uh, well, I'd, I'd already left home. What um, age? Uh, I left home when I was 15. I, I, uh, I lived with my mum for quite a while, but um, I, my stepfather and I didn't get on, and he was not nice. Okay. And so then I went to live with my father, but that was very difficult because he was by then a sort of fully-fledged alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And when my stepmother left him with the two children that they'd had, um, and I ended up children. living with him... Um, on my own and trying to go to school and kind mm. of manage what was really a fast deteriorating mm. um, situation. And he and I were living in some rented house in the far reaches of Dublin and I'd get home from school and there would just be stuff piled in the in the kitchen and everything. And, and so I decided I had to mm. leave. But going back to my mother's wasn't really an option. So a, a very nice um, pair of lesbian sisters i.e. not a couple, but mm-hmm. they said I could rent a room from them. Uh, I'd met them working in a restaurant in Dublin called The Blackboard, oh. yeah. where I used to work at weekends. and then As I, a waiter. As a waitress, yeah. and um, Or a waiter, as mm-hmm. we say now. Um, and that was for two, a lovely gay couple called Peter and Melvin, who really looked after me very mm-hmm. well, because, I mean, what kind of a state I must have been in, I'm, I'm no idea. Mm-hmm. But apparently I was a very good waitress. I, I can imagine. I loved it. It was my favourite job. You? What did you love about it? I loved the interaction and I loved that it made me feel quite efficient and um, I loved the whole, well, I think yeah. the theatre of theater it, of it, actually, yeah. really. Yeah. I think it is my, a kind yeah. of drama. Isn't yeah. It? yeah. And I just used to love getting, but I think maybe I also just loved getting to work because yeah, it was, it was, was school. You were still going to school but working. When I first started working there and then I, I worked there full time for about four months and then a friend of mine gave me a job in his recording studio. Mm. And so I did that until I left for London mm. in Dublin. Yeah, that's when I met, you know, wow. all of the people that we have in common. Yeah. You know, did I, you meet them there? But I, I recorded U2's first did demo you? tapes when I was, yeah, 15 yeah. and he was 17. He hates it when I remind him that <laughs> 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 he's older. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that was all when I was working at Keystone Studios. But after my father died, Dublin started feeling, I don't know, I think my father got offered a job at the Sunday Times probably about four years before he died. And I think in my head that lodged as that would have been the moment that he could have yeah. changed his life. That was yeah. his, the, the pivotal moment where, where things could have changed for the better. And he didn't take the job. And I think he didn't take the job because he was afraid and because he was mm. an alcoholic. And um, so I think for me that always represented this sort of golden light that yeah. you could you could fly towards yeah. and and so after he died I became quite resolute about getting out so I took the ferry from Dunleary with my did friend you know in London oh you had another friend she didn't know she she just had an address did for she? us <laughs> she wow. she um there was a uh, she had some Irish friends who were living in a squat uh, or friends of friends who were living in a squat in Stonely Street in West London actually not very far from yeah. here off Latimer Road and we arrived there on a bright summer, sunny morning and were greeted uh, at the door by just this crowd of Irish men, mostly. And I was like, Maraid, what was the point in coming all the yeah. way here if yeah. we're just going to live with a yeah, whole Irish. house full of Irish yeah. people? Yeah. But they were incredible to us and made, they were so hospitable. Are you 16? 16. Wow. She was, she's 18. And, um, and we, they gave us a, a room that there was already two of them living in, but we were allowed to share it. I mean, they were amazing days, you know. I think it was a, it was a really great time to be it young, was great. Yeah. you know. There was huge adversity, mm. uh, but at the same time, life just felt full of possibility and you could afford to rent places for cheap. You know, we were only in the squat for about three months and then I, I got a job at Bl- Blushes on the King's Road. Blushes. I don't know that? if it's still there. It was a wine bar. And then it used to be so amazing on a Saturday then, yeah. you know, Bob Geldof and Paula. Yeah, because they, they live right around the corner from me. And they yeah. used to arrive on a Saturday morning at about 11 o'clock at the tube station on the King's Road. And then they would promenade mm, up the, the King's Road and they would be followed by this sort of retinue of 
it was like a medieval, you know, it was like Henry VIII had arrived <laughs> and all these people would be yeah. following along in their wake. And again, it was like theatre watching, you know, and it was punk and it was mm. just incredible and do you, exciting. Do you remember what you ate at that time? I mean, did, would, you, would you go to restaurants or would you cook at home or would you... I'd, I'd cook at home. I'd cook at home. I, food wasn't Scrap, great in wasn't, London then. Matter. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, just and, and and also, I didn't really care so much. I mean, I was so obsessed with just survival and getting on, mm. survival and getting on. I mean, it was the 1970s. I think there was quite a bit of sort of beef bourguignon mm. and, mm. you know, black forest ghetto, mm. nothing to mm. write home about. Everyone was eating spaghetti bolognese because that was very exotic and Italian, yeah. but not. Chianti bottles with the straw. <laughs> Chianti yeah. bottles. Yeah. Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah, Beaujolais Nouveau. That yeah. was always the quite Nouveau. exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that through the 80s, um, but not so much the food, really. Yeah. So you're, you're a 16-year-old in London. You're working in blushes. You're living in this Irish house. Your father's just died. And? Did and you have a vision? Did you know? Did you have? Did you know you wanted to be the, the writer or the journalist, or did you, did you go back to school? Or no. you, so you left school at fifteen. Yeah. Wow. I did my, you know, the the equivalent of GCSEs, and um, and then, um, yeah, it just wasn't possible. Yeah. And for a while, I thought I'll go back to school, and then I just realised that that wasn't going to happen. And then I didn't really have a a, a dream, you know, mm. because it, it was very much about day survival, day. really, mm. and it was day to day. And I think I was just very lucky, you mm. know. I had lots. I think of, you probably must have been a fantastic kid, I, I you know, just, to have that courage and to you know that. But that you have courage you. when you're that age, don't if, you? I think you maybe because you yeah. don't know. You know, now I think I'm much less brave than I was when mm. I was 16 years old or or 18 mm. years old because now you have the benefit of or not mm. of having seen yeah. what yeah. the world can do yeah, and then and you risk for it yeah, yeah the risk and the risk scary. and the yeah. jeopardy whereas then it's just about you know possibility yeah. isn't it and I felt possibility in London you know that that energized me and just mm. kept me going you know I mean it, it was it wasn't e of course it wasn't easy you mm. know and I missed my dad so badly you know because I think as a as a daughter when you lose your father at that age you kind of deify yeah. them yeah. and so I'd elevated him to this yeah. impossible kind of um Olympian height yeah. and so I spent an awful lot of my late teens and early 20s you know finding really broken men and yeah. trying to fix them yeah. because I felt guilty that I hadn't fixed my dad and I, I really think it took me till my 30s really to escape yeah. from the kind of tyranny of sure. his perfection uh, which you know and realize who he who he was you know mm. which doesn't make me love less, him yeah, any less but yeah. it certainly helped yeah. to create a more functional yeah. life for myself and did you drink or was the fact that he died of sort of alcohol? No, effect? I think I drank, but yeah. I don't think, I, I mean, I've never, I'm Do not you, a very addictive, apart from cigarettes, yeah. which mm. I was hopelessly addicted to mm. for sort of all of my 20s and, and early 30s, which is mad because mm. my father died of a heart attack and mm. was a chain smoker. But drink... I mean, you know, it was the 1980s. I was in the mm. music business. Mm. I had oh, so a lot of music. fun. Then, yeah. yes, because the next thing I did was get a job at a record company. Yeah, I mean, you were, Because yeah. of the studio that I'd worked yeah. in in Ireland. You know, it was always people who you'd met who then would introduce you to somebody yeah. else. And, you yeah, know, you, sometimes you'd get a little chink of an opportunity mm. and you would grab that and then you would... And the journalism and the television only happened again just by accident you know I worked for this record company I worked with Bob Geldof mm. I worked on Band-Aid and Live Aid and um, he stole my desk to, <laughs> to, to, to sort out Band-Aid yeah. from yeah. and you know I was there on the day when they we all went to that studio in West London and mm. all of those people it was a kind of amazing magical time then I set up my own little PR company but at the same time they were looking for um a tv presenter um for a music program that Channel 4 were making and it was going to be all world music and that was what was really exciting about yeah. it to me because it was a, my father always used to bring back amazing records from Africa, mm. Miriam Makeba yeah, and you yeah. know, just in, incredible um, music and so I was really excited to get involved in it and they gave me the job. I was 
appalling. I mean, someone sent me like a YouTube clip the other day. You know how everything lives on YouTube <laughs> yeah. of me presenting. Oh, look at it. Yeah, it was called uh, Big World. Yeah. And I spoke in a monotone oh, yeah. like that. And I was clearly just shit scared. Yeah. <laughs> and, they didn't, and really they didn't self-conscious. Think to sort of teach you how to no, do that. No. Yeah. Um, but, but so I did that for a couple of years and then it just... Did you have a domestic life as well? Did you live with anybody and have to think about a kitchen or food or bringing shopping home? Or did you just basically food was that you smoked and had no, I, food? Did you <laughs> eat something? Smoked and drank Beaujolais <laughs> Nouveau. But I did get married when I was 18 to uh, another lost soul who's a wonderful and old friend of mine now mm. called Richard Jobson, who was the lead singer in this um, punk band called The Skids. Called? Skids. Um, skids. Yeah, Skids. Great band. Yeah, yeah great. Skids. In, yeah. Into the Valley, working for the Yankee Dollar. Come on, Ruby. You know you've got to go to anywhere without the Skids playing. But, but Richard was a really interesting and unusual character. He was another lost kid. He's okay. left home at 16. He had, you know, huge intellectual aspirations, many of which he went on to realize a huge determination. And I think we sort of fell together out of loneliness mm. and mm. we tried to, you know we gave it our best shot for two kids and we stayed together till I was 21 wow so young but um so we had a domestic life then and very like? rudimentary I used to make things like grilled pork chops with mustard okay. on them mm. and um a lot of potatoes spaghetti bolognese did you use cookbooks did you do you remember using uh, I had the Constance Spry yeah. cookbook mm. that um, my mum had given mm. me because that was sort of her Bible. So she I did cook your mum? Yeah, she used to bake more than cook. I mean, when I think about food that my mum made, she used to make incredible gingerbread. Mm. She did make a mean uh, spaghetti bolognese. She used to make, she made really good normal food. Mm. You know, she'd make a great shepherd's pie. Yeah. Um, Did she come from? She came from an English family. And she's uh, half Scottish, Scottish, half English. Scottish, so yeah. Scottish. She was Scottish, yeah. really. But she learned. You know, we used to. She used to, She taught me how to make lobscouse, which is a. <laughs> it's a very rudimentary Norwegian stew, uh, which is yeah. just beef and potatoes, but mm. cubed very small yeah. and cooked in their own oh, broth yeah. for quite a long period of time. And she used to make um, these things called milkeringer, which are. Um, they're sort of yogurts, mm. basically, mm. that um, Norwegians used to make. And it was very weird because both she and my stepmother used to make these yogurts. Uh, once I left her house and went, went to live with my dad, every cupboard you opened would have yogurt, you know, breeding. Yeah, was it, your father's second wife Norwegian? She well? wasn't. They, they weren't married, but I mean, she but was. But she was Norwegian. No, she was Irish. But so your I father think obviously had an influence. Yeah, no, but they all did. wanted to impress they him. They wanted to impress he him. He had this thing, really? you know, yeah. which clearly worked for every woman in his life. Um, and I don't think my mum and my stepmother mm. were the only ones mm. either. Mm. So, um, yeah, he, that's a, he that's had a thing. That's the thing of cooking for, you know, seduction as well, isn't it? That people can remember. Can you remember a meal where you wanted to impress somebody and you cooked? I've never cooked when I wanted Don't to impress them. Yeah. Well, you joined by Judy Dent. She said the same thing. He, went, he came down and he said something to her like, you know, she said, this agent is coming, so I'm going to make him the best omelette. She tried to figure out how to make the best omelette. And he, and he ate it and she was looking and he said, I think you should stick to acting or something like that. <laughs> The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, I'm going to ask you to share us of all the recipes that you, we have in all our books. You said that you wanted to make spaghetti vongole. So would you like to read the recipe for spaghetti vongole? I will read the recipe for you. Four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, four cloves of garlic, finely chopped, three dried red chilies, crumbled, three kilos of small clams, a bunch of flat-leaf parsley, finely chopped, and then in brackets divided, talk about organisation, mm. sea salt and freshly ground black pepper, 400 grams of spaghetti, one lemon quartered. Fairly precise, I think uh, yeah. probably listeners will realise. Um, that serves four. You heat the oil in a large frying pan over a medium heat. Add the garlic and fry over a medium heat for one minute until just beginning to brown. That's where I go wrong often. You should just have bigger pieces of garlic, and then you can take them out. Or just cook it slower. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Add the crumbled chilies, clams, and two tablespoons of water. Cover and fry over a high heat for about five minutes until all the clams open, discarding any that don't. Add half the parsley to the clams. Season with salt and pepper. Drain the spaghetti and add to the clams. Serve with the remaining parsley and the lemon quarters. And you made it with Carlotta. Hi, I'm Carlotta, I'm a chef at the River Cafe. So I'm going to start sweating off the garlic with parsley stalks. So it's sweating rather than frying, I think that's the important thing. Exactly. Yeah. Now a bit of chilli. Now a flick of chilli. Dry chilli. Dry chilli, yes, always dry chilli. So that's starting to fry off and at this stage I'm going to add the clams and beans. So you've scrubbed them, you've done all the hard work with them because that is the boring thing, isn't it? And and these clams are from where? Because the tastiest clams, I think, come from the Bay of Naples. And I think it's partly because it's a bit grubby. (laughs) 
Abed. Oh, sorry. So this, um, at this point we just want to get a little bit more heat into the pan. And then I'm going to, so usually here we use Suave to put the bongole in. Nice to sort of drink it and Absolutely. stick it in the dish as yes. well. It's multi-purpose Suave. <laughs> You can overcook the clams as well, you can't you? Can, yes. So what's too long? You want to catch them just as they're opening up. And will they, if you stop the heat when they're opening up, will they keep opening up the way They'll you want them to? They'll keep opening up, absolutely. Yeah. So at this stage, they're starting to open up. So I'm going to finish cooking the pan so in here. Good. And the starchy water, the wine and the oils are going to come together. I bet you can flip a pancake, can't you? (laughs) She's got brilliant hand tipping technique. I'm going to finish it with parsley for freshness. So there we have it. Oh my god, that is the most spectacular thing, and now I feel confident. (laughs) I love it. Thank you very much. It's a revelation. Well, first of all, why did you choose this? It's entirely uh, my favorite dish, mussels and clams. Mm-hmm. And there was a period in my childhood when we, we lived uh, on the west coast of Ireland in Connemara. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on one of my mother's kind of um, escapes from realities, mm-hmm. which used to happen quite often. And we went to live there for six months and we were very poor. Mm-hmm. And for about a three-month period, we just ate potatoes that we could mm-hmm. dig up and mussels, which we mm-hmm. picked from the the rocks. And you'd think that actually that would have kind of knocked any desire mm-hmm. to eat them ever again out of me. But I think there was a sort of four or five-year hiatus, mm-hmm. maybe a bit longer, I think probably till I, I first came to London and then I re-embraced them. And then I used to go to Naples with my best friend and we used to have... Um, spaghetti with cozza and fasolare from the Bay of Naples. And, I mean, ever since then. And then Molly, weirdly, my daughter, um, from when she was a toddler, her absolute favourite thing was mussels and clams. And it's quite odd to see a little toddler there kind of throwing the shells over her shoulder and digging into a plate of seafood. So I I think many influences have combined to make it my favourite, but I think it's really difficult to make because it's so simple. Mm. There's no hiding it, is there? There's no hiding. And I really love that. I love food like that. I don't really like very complicated food, uh, you know, sort of very French, high-end, mm. never really enjoyed mm. it. Much, much prefer, you know, really great fresh ingredients and and a simple recipe, mm. which is probably why I've been found mm. here for the last... <laughs> you know, I used to... I first came to the River Cafe and yeah, when you think. first opened virtually in the 1980s. Yeah, 1987 we opened. And when we were only open for lunch, do you remember? We you were, were only open for lunch, then, I think, when I first then, started coming. Yeah. And you used to have a wine from outside of Venice called uh, I obviously wasn't paying the bills then that yeah. was the beginning of my career yeah. but I used to come with a, a, a friend and we used to have this wine called Where Dreams Have oh, yeah, No where End Where Dreams Have No End yeah oh. that, with that label wasn't it with it was that, amazing yeah. Yeah. And, and even yeah. then this felt like the most glamorous place on earth because it felt decadent in all the best ways and um, actually here was one of the first places, and I know it's on a different level from the pub on Grafton Street or whatever, but it was one of the first places where I really felt that sort of babble of excitement and conversation that you get on a Friday night in a pub in Dublin. To be passionate about something, and food is something you can be Mm. really passionate about. And, I mean, with my... I, I was not a great sort of domestic... But actually, to go through a long period where I had a house in Sussex that I used to rent with this couple, uh, friends of mine, Nicola yeah. and Helena, they're still my friends, and we used to cook together. Yeah. And they were some of the happiest years of my life. Yeah, cooking you together. You know, cooking together every weekend. Mm. And I actually learned a lot. Nicola was a particularly good cook, and they were very precise. You know, even things like a... You know, I remember her teaching me to make a basil omelette. Mm. But it's a bit like the vongole. Mm. It's only about the ingredients because it's so simple. Good basil. Yeah. And you you have to, you know, and that, I think, I just love the sort of satisfaction that that comes from that. But then when you have kids. Yeah, so what was that like? Well, I loved cooking for them. Well, going back to marrying 
Jason, did he grow up in a domestic house where, where meals, unlike yours, or was it the same? Kind? No, no, very unlike mine. His mum did everything, and she was in, uh, she's a really good cook. She still mm. is, you know, mm. I mean, very English, mm. quite sort of 1970s. Mm-hmm. She had one of those trolleys oh. that's hot, that mm-hmm. keeps things hot, and mm. she would wheel it in yeah, my mom to sit by the table. Yeah. And, you know, the plates would be in there warming, and the food, lots of sort of casseroles mm. and pot roasts and things like that. But a re- she's a really good cook. It always looks perfect. She's yeah. a good baker yeah. uh, as well. And um, Jason is probably the better cook in our house. He loves, absolutely loves cooking. And I feel like I loved it during those years in Sussex, and I loved the early days of cooking for my kids but then something happened when they just make faces about the food you cooked Mm. and never like it and Mm. and it became such a negotiation in the house Mm. that I kind of lost the heart of it I mean now I'm I'm back Mm. but Jason sort of took over in in a lot of ways but do you eat really healthy not the, consciously just like the food the food that you like it's the food that I like yeah I love fresh things I love you know one of the things that gives me huge satisfaction is we've got a garden uh, which during a, the spring period of the year is just absolutely wall-to-wall wild garlic it can almost is become it? noxious the smell yeah and I just love to mm. gather it and I make pesto in mm. industrial quantities Good. Well, we have to. And when you go, when you go to Greece, do you cook there? Uh, yeah, we go to Greece a lot. I, I get uh, like a craving for. I, I used to go to Greece from the age of sixteen, mm. and so, you know, Greek islands. You get there, the smell, the pine, mm. the Greek salad. Again, it's everything simple. Um, I just love it. Yeah. I just love it. And so actually, you know, there we tend to eat out yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. But we'll make, you know, a big lunch with Greek salad and we'll make some yeah. dips and things. And, you know, we might get some fish and grill it. You know, we keep it very simple. But you have a lot of friends over. You you do like, do you, do you prefer going to people's houses or having them come to you? Or do you like those? <laughs> I, I prefer going to people's houses because uh, then I don't have to clear yeah, up. Yeah. Jason prefers having people over because I clear up oh, after him that, yeah. and he loves cooking. But no, we do have people over a lot. Yeah. And we, I, there's nothing, is there, I don't think there's anything nicer than a table full of people and they're all eating and talking. And, yeah. you know, I tend to make big stews and things that um, I don't have to do a lot of cook. Our kitchen is all open like yours. And when people talk to me when I'm cooking, I can't cope with it. I can't concentrate. So I have to make things that are already. And I love slow cook things and osobuco and things like that. And yeah. So how do you combine working with cooking? You know, the the chat or how did you bring up children and pursue your career and you know, have a home life. Did you rush from one thing to another? Did you have, was it hard or did you just do it, do you think? I think same as every yeah, woman, you it. know. I mean, it's it's so much every woman's experience these days, isn't mm. it? And it's kind of the bit that wasn't factored into our great desire for, um, you know, equality and independence. So I think it's really hard. You know, it was less hard for me because mm. I had, you know, enough money to have helped but I I think it's a really difficult thing and I think you know for most women it's a burden of responsibility that you just you perform it because Mm. you don't have a choice you don't feel like you have a choice you know it is really tyranny I think also as you say it's it's economic you know and so when people say oh you know there are all these kids who are growing up on pizza McDonald's well the fact is that if you have a night job and you have a choice I often think I like to think that maybe the mother has a choice of doing homework with her kids or cooking a fresh meal for them. Maybe cut her some, you know. And maybe I think, that's what I think if you've do. done a, a pretty hard graft job that isn't based yeah. on your passion or yeah, any of the exactly. luxuries that, that, exactly. that, you know, some of us have, if you've done a hard graft job all day and then you get home and you've got hungry, grumpy kids, mm. I don't think you want to sit down and start creating a meal. Yeah. I mean, for all the the sense of you know, holistic happiness it, mm. it might offer. I don't think you're in a place to actually think about or, or, or do that, you know. It's tough. Yeah. You know, we saw in lockdown when kids didn't go for, you know, to school, they didn't have their one meal of the day. And I was, you know, talking to Jamie the other day about, you know, the goal now is to make lunches so nutritious because you know that's the only meal a kid's going to have. But we know? should have free school meals, mm, I mean, universally across the nation, you know. Yeah. And one of the first things we need to do is recognize that there's real hunger in this country yeah. and address it. And the idea that, you know, we can sit around and have 
are amazing meals and somewhere else just down the road there's a kid who isn't getting supper supper, it it makes me feel physically sick and I just don't understand why we can't address it you know I mean I spent my whole childhood worried about things like food yeah Yeah. and I know you know I kind of know the smell of poverty and I'm frightened to death of it you know and I've run so far in mm. in the opposite direction but i'm still you know rubbish at kind of handling it mm. because it's a fear it's mm. a deep deep rooted fear and we're bringing up you know a whole it's generation a of, of kids yeah. are, are yeah. experiencing that yeah. hi there i'm bob pittman chairman and ceo of iheartmedia Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're working at, you know, on your column, when you're writing on your campaigns, on your books, do you eat? <laughs> well, you do know you what, since I, since I started uh, my radio show at, at the Times, I've lost a lot of weight. I mean, not yeah. a lot, but yeah. I've, I've definitely got thinner, not intentionally, but because yeah. it's a lunchtime show and lunch mm. is my favorite meal. Like I, I can eat like a horse at lunchtime. Yeah. I love it. I, I can still sleep at night, you know, because once you're menopausal and postmenopause, yeah. sleep can become yeah. a bit of a, a, a challenge. And so lunch is my favorite meal. Mm. And four days a week, I can't have lunch. So and what do you do? I just don't eat until after I finish my show. So I end up having maybe one and a half meals a day. You know, I have Mm. supper, but I have tea, you know, kids, high tea supper. I always eat about 6.30 or 7. I don't really like breakfast very much. At weekends I have breakfast. I make breakfast for the kids at the weekend. I love doing that. You know, it makes you feel... There's so few moments as a parent, I think, where you feel... I've got this, yeah. you know, and making them breakfast is yeah. one of them, you know, whether it's nice. banana pancakes or scrambled eggs and bacon or whatever, nice. avocado on toast. I mean, that, it's ridiculous. My children are now 17 and 18 and they still at the weekends will come in and kind of go, what's for breakfast, mum? Yeah, but that will never stop. <laughs> <laughs> I hope do it that. doesn't because it makes yeah, me yeah, feel I useful. I agree. Yeah, I think going home and being fed and, and I think, you know, we all grow up with kind of role models I certainly you know did and I see myself sort of acting my mother was incredibly child oriented you know she never blamed a child never told off a child the child was always right or my you know we had a lot of way that we kind of grew up but I think for somebody who didn't grow up with that and then to be the way they are it's it's like you know it's so inspiring to me because it's you know so that you've come from maybe you know your father's but 
You had love, you know, I guess. I had love. Yeah, you know yeah. what? And I always think about this because, you know, they say that basically we, f- we shape our children by the mm. time they're five or six. Mm. And I think I was really lucky because the one thing that they were really good at was mm. they made me feel very mm. loved. Mm. And once you have that, yeah. it gives you a confidence to step out into the world and, and you know, stick your toe in the water and, mm. and, and see what's out there. And I think you know, without that, that's when the real damage yeah. sets in. And so all of the other things were pretty survivable. But I think without that early love, mm-hmm. and, and and we were definitely, you know, my mum was an a, amazing mum, particularly when we were little, before mm-hmm. things got, got difficult. But I'm very, inter- I have to ask you one mm-hmm. question, which is, were you interested in food even when you were a teenager and in your 20s or was it your mother-in-law that inspired you really with, with food? I would say that my mother was, uh, here we go, see? Did you, <laughs> what was it? <laughs> Don't, you think? Don't you think? <laughs> Don't you find? <laughs> here we go. Uh, yeah, the story is that my father was a doctor and my mother was a librarian and I think they both came, they were immigrant, their families, were, they were born in, in the Lower East Side and then, you know, Jewish immigrants who came, Ellis Island, all that. And I think that for them, the whole thing was education. Whereas my grandparents were very focused on food. I think both my mother was trying to get, she went back to college when we were like five or six to be a librarian. And my father was, you know, trying to make it as a doctor. And I think that we always ate fresh food. We always ate well. We sat around, you know, that thing of sitting around the table. But probably I romanticize it. Probably the food we had. My sister is much more scathing. But um, but I I sort of I think that um, the conversation was more important than than what we ate. But yeah. we ate well. We never had delivered or packaged Spaghetti food with or syrup. no no we didn't have spaghetti <laughs> with golden syrup. For me, it all opened up when I did come to Europe, going to Italy, and then living in Paris as we did. That was the kind of food you know inspiration but I think there's something well. about Italian food though as well because most of it maybe you know some of it's complicated but most of it is about fresh ingredients yeah. and simplicity and it's very seductive you know mm. I became interested in food as I said to you when when I used to go and stay with with my friend Natalie, you know, mm. because this was amazing Na- food. Natalie it, from Naples. Natalie from Naples. <laughs> because it wasn't performance food. Yeah. It was just amazingly good food. And, yeah. you know, they wouldn't have beans on toast at four o'clock in the morning. As I said, they would make a pasta, Yeah, you know. And actually, you know, a lot of Italian men can cook as yeah. well, which I, you know, still find really mm. impressive. You know, I'm mm. lucky because I married a man who can cook. Mm. But the number of my friends who sort of mm. look at Jason wistfully mm. and go, oh, I yeah. wish mine could do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, We've talked about the work. We've talked about the children. We've talked about, um, you know, the husband who cooks. Maybe we should wind up on the comfort food and ask you if food is is sharing and love and memories. Certainly memories. Your memories are about food. It's about food and memory, and I also think that our emotional lives are often channeled through food. So mm. when food isn't good, I mean, mm. it is a bit like like water for chocolate mm. or whatever. You mm. know, when, when food isn't good, it's because other things aren't good. Mm. And that's why, you know, the bad meals are as almost defining memories mm. as the good meals, you know. And for me sitting down at a table and having something simple and delicious with my kids sitting opposite me and my husband sitting at the table. It does feel, in some ways, not to be too saccharine about it, but like a sort of dream come true. And and the table is the place where that theatre of it plays out. And I look around and think, gosh, you know, Mm. aren't I lucky? Yeah, I, I got this. Yeah, you are, and we are. And do you have a comfort food that you go to when you? That's what you needed. Well, all the way um, through my twenties, I used to go and stay with my best friend Natalie in Another Naples. Another best friend. How many best friends? I'm getting <laughs> I, really. I'm getting friend jealousy here. I've got, like, <laughs> I've got two best friends. <laughs> okay, that's best friends, but that's okay. really you know yeah. I've known them since I was 18 okay. years I, old. I'll get and, over this. Okay, and um, and we used to cook. Um, aglio olio 
Uh, and we used to cook it at four o'clock in the morning when we came back from the nightclub in um, in Capri where we used to go. We used to cook it in the middle of the afternoon if we got peckish. Uh, we used to cook it if one of us was sobbing. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so in many ways that still is my sort of go-to comfort food. But the other thing I've learned to cook quite recently is this delicious, I call it porridge bread. Mm-hmm. It is an Irish recipe mm-hmm. and it is very much porridge bread because it's just mm. made with oats and seeds and live yogurt and uh, a spoon of baking powder and it's incredibly easy no to yeast. make foolproof it doesn't, it doesn't. no yeast no flour and no flour yes and it's, it's so delicious what's it's quite Irish dense bread that, what's that called well it's like soda bread it's soda like bread. the wheaten yeah. bread yeah it's very like that which is yeah. also another sort yeah. of comfort food and so you take all these grains and you, and you add them and, 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 and the oats and the oats and the yogurt and the yeah. baking powder and you just put it all in a bowl mix yeah. it all together put it into oh. a loaf tin in in baking paper yeah. you know and um you have to cook it for about 50 minutes altogether you cook mm. 40 minutes one side and then tip it over mm. it's rock hard on the outside it's absolutely mm. moist and delicious on the inside and that with a thick layer of butter Okay, I love butter. We yeah, you, I love butter. We love butter. Richard's, Richard's mother used to say that butter was the best cheese, and she was a northern Italian. But if you think about butter like a cheese, then you can have that thick piece with a little thin bit of uh, bread, you know. Yeah, yeah, you just want the bread it's as the a butter. carrier yeah, for the butter, isn't yeah, it? I, I think that's, butter. and that's very um, Irish as well. Yeah, true. And um, we're going to go right now into the River Cafe and you're going to meet a friend and have dinner, aren't you? I am. I'm so, so excited. So nice. Who are you having dinner with tonight then? Go on. I can allow to ask that question. It's my <laughs> you can. It's not my husband oh, for a change. Okay. Um, I have a, a gentleman guest. Good. Um, Good. No, I'm having, I'm having dinner with uh, your friend and mine, Danny Houston. Oh, so divine. fabulous, oh, isn't he? So and nice. he's about to do my podcast, Books to Live By, and I'm so excited to talk to him because, you know, he's going to pick... His, the five books that have shaped his life. Mm. In many ways, it's, books it's the by. literary companion yeah, to this is. one. Food and, food and reading. Go see Danny. And thank you, Mariella. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.